All right, First John chapter five. We should finish up the book of First uh, John today. First John chapter five. We're going to look at verses eighteen to twenty-one. We're going to title it "The Christian Certainties Because of Christ," part two. Remember, two weeks ago we saw part one, uh, but we're going to uh, finish this up. So. Uh, the last time we looked at 1 John, we saw uh, this set of Christian uh, certainties, and they were Christian certainties specifically because of Christ. We saw in chapter 5, verse 13, we saw the certainty of eternal life. John told us that, that, God, uh, that God's testimony, his testifying, him giving witness, that all who have trusted Jesus to save them from their sins have been given eternal life. We saw the certainty of answered prayer in verses 14, 15, 16, and 17. Now that, remember, broke up into two parts. In verses 14 and 15, we heard uh, about the confidence of answered prayer, that being God's child ensures that we get, we have God's attention. And it ensures that aligning with his will uh, will result in the accomplishment of that will through our prayers. Now, we don't know how that works, but we don't need to know how that works. In verses 16 and 17, we receive the counsel in respect to intercession, where uh, our obligation to love our brothers and sisters in Christ's means that we cannot watch them sin, we cannot see them sin, and allow them to go unprayed for. We love them, so we must pray for them. And then, if necessary, we plead with them to repent of that sin, but the first thing we must do is pray for them. How can we say we love them and not lift them to the Lord in prayer? Now we come to the last set of these Christian certainties because of Christ. Uh, we have the certainty of victory over sin. That's verses 18 to 21. And uh, there is in verses 18 to 21 the, uh, the certainties of the Christian faith, the certainties of the Christian's practice, the certainty of the Christian's contrast to the world, and the certainty of Christ's mission. And the last thing, the last verse we see, verse 21 is we have a final warning against idols. Let's look at verse 18, where it says, We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. Now, in verses 18, 19, and 20, there are, are three statements in succession that are introduced by the words, We know. This is the first one. And the thing that we know, we know for certain, is that anyone who is born of God does not continue in sin. Again, this is the habitual attitude leading to the habitual action. The reason is that anyone born of God is kept safe by the first one born of God, who is Jesus Christ. When it says to know, it means to have a positive 
absolute knowledge. It's not something you learn by experience. It is absolute knowledge. And, and, and when, when it says whosoever, it's, it's, it's everyone who is born again. Everyone who knows Jesus as Savior sinneth not. Everyone who knows Jesus as Savior does not, cannot continue in sin. See, verse 18 warns against abusing verses 16 and 17. Uh, as a justifying for carnal uh, behavior, carnal security. Uh, listen to these two commentaries. It says, The power of intercession to overcome the consequences of sin might seem to encourage a certain indifference to sin. Another one says, The condition of being a child of God is incompatible not only with the sin unto death, but with sin of any description. See, there's, there's no such thing, contrary to, to, to Schofield and Schofield's notes. If you, if you have a Schofield Bible, it's a good Bible, but he's wrong on this. Uh, there is no such thing as perpetual carnality. So a believer sinneth not. In other words, a believer does not continue to sin with that fullness of heart and that fullness of spirit and the and the fullness of abandon that the unregenerate person does the one born of god does not keep on habitually sinning now scripture says we know this now believers can and do sin there there's no doubt about that but but the distinct but the distinction is 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 that the believer's sin is in, is in isolation. It's not a pattern of life where sin has dominion over us like it did before we were saved. Um, we do commit sins, but we cannot live in sin. Now the verse goes on, says, He that is begotten of God keepeth himself. What that means is that you are able to guard yourself. And the wicked one does not seize you, does not grab you, does not take control of you. See, we, we carry some responsibility here. We, we are responsible to take heed lest we fall into sin, but, but we are not to look to ourselves for the protection from sin. We do not keep ourselves in the safety and protection of God. We are kept in the safety and protection of God by Jesus Christ. It's a reference to really God the Son. We are protected in him. Another commentary puts it this way. There is no comfort in the thought that we are in our own keeping. Our security is not in our grip, but our security is on Christ and his grip on us. Another one says, consider how apt we are to be marred and injured by the malicious attacks of the evil one, as weakened lambs often lagging to the periphery of the flock, able to be slaughtered by the prowling warring lion. However, our Lord Christ, who conquered sin and death, vanquished the power of the evil one, stifles the conniving drool of the devil, denying him access. We do not habitually sin because we are kept by Christ. And that wicked, wicked one, the evil, the evil one, depending on what translation you have, 
It means evil and active opposition to, to what is good. It means pernicious, wanting to take as many down with him as he can. And, and, and you've met people, people that, that are, are vile, they're wicked, they're ungodly, but they'll leave you alone. They don't want to be bothered. They want to live and die in their own wickedness and not hurt anybody else in the process. That's not this. Okay, Satan wants to, to live, and, and yet he wants to take as many down with him as he can. That is the wickedness that we're up against. So the evil one touches us not, or, or it does not lay hold on us in order to harm us. We know that, that in, in, in the normal state of affairs, there is there's protection from the evil one that we don't even realize. And it's occurring around us all the time, even when we don't see it. So to become vulnerable to the power of Satan, you have to deliberately abandon the care of your good shepherd. And you have to venture out on your own, away from Christ's protection. That means we must yield to Christ in order to have the victory, but we fight from victory as well as fighting for victory. Christians are to live holy lives. This is our practice, and this is our certainty because of Christ. Let's look at number two, verse 19. This is the certainty of the Christian's contrast to the world. Verse 19 says, and we know, that's the second of them, and we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. See, mankind is divided into two great gatherings or, or domains uh, that really, you know, one set belongs to God and, and the other one belongs to uh, Gavin and, and Tyler, why don't you focus up here, okay? Thanks. Belongs to the wickedness or, or the wicked one or, or to Satan. We know that we are of God. This is where and to whom we belong. As long as we are there, as long as we are of God, we are under the protection and the care of Almighty God himself. We're... Uh, we're his charges. We're under his protection. So we're then reminded that we have, have nothing to do with, with, the, with the sphere of Satan's power. See, Satan is, is he's suitably defied. He is thwarted. Satan is denied. Satan is beaten by the mighty arm of God. And, and, and John is summarizing the statements here to, to reinforce in our consciousness that we are distinct. We are distinct from the satanically controlled world system. And we are basically free of its power. We need not listen to the worldly ideas and advances by the Antichrist that are mentioned in chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, nor do we need to succumb to any worldly desires that are talked about in chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. The contrast to the safe confines of the power of God, we know that, that contrary to that, the whole world lies in wickedness. But that's not us. We're not a part of that. Believers have been delivered out of that power. 
the whole world lies helpless, um, motionless, still in it, just as it was. It, it includes everybody, the wise, the great, the respectable, anyone who is not by faith in union with Christ lies in the clutches of the world system. Now what we're talking about here are the origins of believers. Um, we, we are God's children. We belong to him. By contrast, the, the, the world is under control, under the influence of Satan, who not only wants to, to, to go down in wickedness, he wants to take you with him. He can't, but he's going to try. It lies in the evil one. And this is a weird verb in this type of connection. And what it does is it points to, to the powerlessness of the world under Satan's sway. Um, talks about the the lifelessness of the world of 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 the world's refusal to exert itself against its devil master it just lays there it doesn't care now again according to verse 19 this is something we're supposed to know right we we know this we know better remembering that that not everything we encounter in this life is of God. Sometimes we amble through life and we assume that, well, whatever pops up must be completely acceptable to God because, you know, God will never give me more than I can handle, right? That's a lie, all right? God will always give you more than you can handle. So not everything that pops up in this life comes from God. Satan, knowing that he cannot touch us because we are of God, will attempt to touch us through the world. His ungodly system that defies the right of God to rule. And, and that, that world system that, that recoils at God's commands. God warns us about this. Knowing that we're in contrast to the world but but we're in constant contact with this world i mean that's that's necessary if we're ever going to reach anybody for christ in the world we've got to have contact with the world but we're still commanded to keep ourselves unspotted from the world and the danger to the believer springs from us forgetting that the world that that, that we live in this world system is holy completely in the power of the wicked one completely in the power of satan and what happens is we'll we'll forget okay we'll we'll begin to think or or we'll live as if we think that that after all the world it's not absolutely it's not it's not altogether under the influence of the wicked one really i mean yeah there's some what good in the world no that's not what the Bible says. The world uh, tries to convince us that it's not as bad as God says it is. And we find, or we think that we find, some of it at least, is just not quite that offensive. God says it's bad, but it's really not that bad. God says it's evil, but it's really not that evil. And when this happens then we begin to fall into the trap of worldliness, which, 
which raises that thought in us. If you look over in chapter 5 and verse 3, it raises that idea that, boy, all this stuff that God wants me to do is kind of a burden. You know, boy, living for Christ is just getting to be kind of difficult now. As we begin to love the world, we think we feel the commands of Jesus bear heavier and heavier on our shoulders. That the more we love the world, the heavier the commands of Christ become. There is, though, and there must be a stark contrast between the God-hating world system and Christians who are God's people. Otherwise, we cannot live holy as he calls us to be holy. That brings us to number three. Look at verse 20. This is the certainty of Christ's mission. It says, And we know that the Son of God has come and hath given us an, an understanding that we may know him that is true and we are in him that is true even in his Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. To combat being indoctrinated with the world, John reminds us of this third thing that we're supposed to know. We know that the Son of God has come. We know that he has given us an understanding We know that we know him that is true. And to know Christ is to know God the Father. It's the Lord Jesus Christ that makes all the difference. He is all the difference. I mean, he came for two reasons. The first reason is that we might have an understanding of the truth. Not not truth as, as opposed to falsehood, but reality as opposed to fiction. Reality as opposed to imagination. Because there is only one God. To be in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is to be in the Father. John says, this is the true God. This is, he is the divine exclusive reality. There is no one else besides him. This is the true God. This Jesus Christ, God the Son, he is the true God. Jesus Christ is the only express image of the Father. It's the only one that's sanctioned. It's the only one that God allows. It's the only true visible manifestation of God. All other representations of God are forbidden as idols. See, there's no room for man to uh, create a God of his own choosing. Uh, It just doesn't work. Uh, Isaiah 46, verse 9, says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me, God says. The creation of other gods, it's it's a work of foolishness. Jeremiah chapter 10, read, read when you get home, Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 1 through 11, you'll see how stupid it is to try to create idols or other gods. The creation of other gods is just ridiculous, and, and the fact of the matter is, only God is God. See, God has no opposite. God has no equal. I mean, light has an opposite, that's dark. Up has an opposite, that's down. Cold has an opposite, that's hot. But God has no opposite. 
God has no equal. He is not a fictional character dreamed up by some mystic. He is reality. And the revelation of that reality is Jesus Christ. And we ought to know that. Now the other reason that Jesus came, not only are we persuaded of the reality of God, but the other reason he came was to persuade us of, of, of the reality of your sin, the reality of my sin, that it's true and that it's real, and that you and I are true and real sinners, that wrath is real, judgment is real, punishment is real, or there would have been no reason for the incarnation of Christ that resulted by faith in us being, eternal, being given eternal life. Jesus Christ is the only place we find reality. Now the thought of eternal life produces uh, ideas or visions of unending conscious existence just kind of running on forever and ever and ever but, but that's the realize that that's the smallest part of eternal life. Eternal life refers more to the manner of the living than, it's, than it does the term or, or the, the duration. It, it refers more to the, to the character or the nature of the life than it does the continuance of the life. So, so what, is, what is eternal life that we have in Christ? Well, it absolutely, and we've touched on this earlier, goes beyond just existing forever. It necessarily includes the abolition of death because we've passed from death unto life through Christ. There's no, now no more condemnation for our sin. John 5.24 tells us that. It also involves the ability, the power, the capacity to live in harmony with God, to, to have our sins forgiven, to be reconciled to the Father, conformity to the image of His Son, Romans 8.29. See, we jokingly say this, but people believe this. They want to go to heaven, but they don't want God to be there. They want to go to heaven, but they don't want to go through Jesus Christ in order to have it done. Eternal life is indistinguishably tied to the person of Jesus Christ. And if you do not have Jesus Christ, you do not have eternal life. This is the true God, and this is eternal life. This direct connection was provided to us when we were told up in verse 12 that he who hath the Son hath life, and he who hath not the Son of God hath not life. The resurrection of Christ is here seen to be the most significant thing. The importance of knowing that Jesus Christ is living does not rest in the idea that he exists. Not only that, but, but that he himself is life. He has life in himself. And the ability then, because he has the life in himself, he has the ability to impart that life to those who come to him by faith. He has the ability because he has the life in him, he can give it to somebody else. 
See, John began this. You remember when we were over in chapter 1 of 1 John? He began this epistle by talking about the Lord Jesus being the source of life who he was trying to introduce us to. It says in verse 2, For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show it unto you, that eternal life which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. So Jesus himself identified himself as the sole means by which this quality of eternal life can be obtained. John 14, verse 6, the only way to the Father is through him. But however real these things are, we know the purpose and the reason that he gave us this understanding that it talks about here so that we may know him he gave us an understanding of these deep spiritual things so that we may know him who is true because we're in him who is true we're in his son jesus christ and being in jesus christ the son that is the true god and that is eternal life See, your, your Christianity, your Christian faith, your, your relationship with Christ is not a hindrance to intellectual activity. It, it ought to be a stimulus to right thinking, to think critically and to think correctly about the truth. The purpose of this is that we may know him that is true. And not only do we know him, we know we are in him who is true. We know that we are in Jesus Christ. Now once again, our position of fellowship is, is only through the mediation work of God the Son. It's the only way we have access to the Father. We enjoy fellowship with God only as we are in Christ. And outside of Jesus Christ, there is no fellowship with God. <clears throat> There's only darkness and pain, and punishment, but in Christ I have peace with God because I am in him who is true. That was, that, that is the mission of Christ, to place all who believe on him by faith in himself and in the Father. That's what he wants us to know. When we come to verse 21, which is the last verse, it seems a little bit out of place, but really it is, it is by the design of the Holy Spirit. Number four is the final warning against idols. Look at verse 21. Little children, a very, a very sweet term of endearment for John to the audience that he's writing to. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And he closes with the amen. Now John's not thinking just mostly or only about the heathen worship that was going on in Ephesus at the time with Artemis and her temple and, and, and all the pagan sexual activities that went into that worship. But he's also thinking of the heretical substitutes that, that the Gnostics were trying to bring in for the true concepts of God. Uh, when First John mentions the Antichrist, th this is what they were trying to propagate, these false ideas of who God is and what he's done. He had just written, just written, concerning the genuine God of Scripture. And now he warns against the false counterfeit gods, both of paganism 
but the false counterfeit gods of bad theology. When it says to keep, that means to guard, to watch, to keep a watch out. It was used when, when a garrison, a bunch of soldiers, were to come in and to guard a city. They were to guard it from attacks from the outside. That's what we're supposed to do. We're to guard ourselves. And when it says yourselves, what that does is it accents the need of effort on your part. You need to be careful what you let into your heart and mind. Because the dangers of idolatry were everywhere, just like they are today. The construction of this imperative, it it emphasizes the duty, the responsibility of every believer to exert personal effort to protect your hearts from from chasing after both the false gods and the false ideas of God. Remember Jeremiah 17, 9? Your heart wants to lead you astray. You've got to protect yourself from that. Every believer has the responsibility to refrain from attempting to recreate God in a form of, of, of your own devising, of a form that, that, that you're comfortable with. You get this from people that say, well, you know, my God would never send anybody to hell because God is love. No, they have recreated a God in their own image. Yes, God is love, but God is also holy and just and righteous and wrathful against sin. Every believer has a responsibility to make sure what they believe about God is actually lined up with what God says about God. We're to flee from the false gods of the heathen world and we're to flee from our own false concepts of God. Those false gods, they're not comparable to God. They're not comparable to this almighty creator that you and I serve. I mean, God, your God is jealous, and he would have you come out. He would have you separate yourselves from among them. He would have you mortify, treat as dead your own flesh, and be crucified or die to the world system that they won't usurp the throne or the dominion of your heart, which is due only to God. Your heart, your mind belongs only to God. Nothing or no one belongs in that place. You know what false gods have in common? All of them. No matter how vastly different they are or, or, or their effects on their devotees, is that, is that all of them what they're trying to do, they, they are all attempts to give actual form and substance, true and living embodiment and realization to, to their own ideas, their own thoughts of what a God is. Those concepts which otherwise are, are, are apt to be so, one commentary says, so indistinct, so indefinite, misty, shadowy, as to be for the most part practically all but uninfluential. Why do you try to make something to worship that is nothing when you have the God of heaven as your God? Why would you want to replace that? Except that you don't love him. Except that you won't submit to him. 
except that you won't live for him. Basically, whatever friendship or fellowship or system or society or work or way or habit or occupation that is of such a sort in itself or has such influence over you that you can't be in it and be in God or that you might be in it and not be in God, that's idolatry. Idolatry is whatever receives your warmest affection. Idolatry, an idol, is anything that receives your warmest embrace. Another commentary says, in view of the whole preceding discussion, it is unlikely that we should understand these idols in the sense of images used in worship. The term means false gods. John's readers have been given many gifts by God, including understanding. So let them keep themselves from every false god. Now let's see if we can, we can wrap up this by lunch. Anything, anything that you slide between you and God is an idol. It might be TV, it might be a relationship, it might be fishing, it could be flying, it could be uh, children, it could be thoughts, it could be hunting, it could be something to do with the computer, sports, concepts, a way of thinking, ideas, anything that slips in between you and God. And see, nothing, nothing slips in by itself. Okay, you've got to let your guard down or, it, or, or you have to put it there yourself. If you're driving through Missouri or Kansas, maybe Arkansas, and you see a turtle sitting on a fence post, now you may not know who put it there, right? You may not know necessarily why it's there, but you do know it did not get there by itself. Okay? Idols do not get where they get by themselves. Somebody must have done something. And anything means just that. Anything that you allow to come between you and God is an idol. So perhaps as we summarize the book of 1 John, perhaps this is the best closing thought that we can leave with ourselves here. And if you remember from chapter 1 all the way here to chapter 5, because you are saved and because you have fellowship with the Father and the Son, because you have the witness of the Holy Spirit in you, because you know that you have eternal life based on the testimony of God himself, because you are in God the Son, you will keep yourselves from having anything as a higher priority than God himself. You will live in the certainty that Jesus Christ is both your God and that Jesus Christ is your life. Because you know him. Because you have relationship with him.
because you have fellowship with him. You will love him and you will live for him. Stand with your heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, this morning we want to thank you for this look into your word. We thank you, Father, for uh, this time that you've given us in, in the book of First John. And we thank you, Lord, for the truth. Some of them have been hard, uh, but, Lord, they've been from you because you love us. As Father, as we wrap up this study, thank you that there are things that you want us to know. You do not want us to check our brains at the door. You want us to be thinking, reasonable people, and to believe what we believe because you have provided us so much evidence. Thank you that we can know that the Son of God has come. Thank you that we can know that he's given us eternal life. And thank you that we can know that we are in him, that he is the true God and he is our life. Thank you for the confidence we have. Thank you for overcoming the world for us and allowing us the ability to say no to its influence. Thank you that though it breaks our heart that the whole world lies in wickedness, thank you that we do not. That we are separated from its power, separated from its influence. Because once again, we are in your Son. Father, work in us by the power of your Holy Spirit that truth so that it transforms every area of our thinking. That our living may bring honor and glory to you. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As you remain standing, take your hymn books. 326. 326. This is an apt song for, for the last message in the book of First John. Let's sing verse 1, 326. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Jesus.